Welcome to the study of the book of Revelation, taught by Michael Fitzgerald, senior pastor of Clifford Baptist Church. These lessons come from a Wednesday night study of the book, so the format is more of a classroom setting. Included in this Revelation series are written study notes which can be accessed with each lesson in the series. This is the second segment out of about 40 that we are going to study through the book of the Revelation. Uh, Last week, we began that series, uh, which will take us through uh, this entire book, all of the chapters. And I do want to remind you that the book of Revelation, as it begins in verse 1, it reveals Jesus Christ. That is why it is the revelation in singular. Uh, It's not a series of revelations, but rather it is one revelation of Jesus Christ in his glory as we will see him one day. Now, you will also remember from last week's lesson, also in verse 1, look at the verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants. This book is not intended for the world. This book is intended for believers, for brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might understand God's plan in the long term and God's plan for the end times. Now, the world is interested in this book. You know, when you think about that Left Behind series, it was a huge, huge seller. The world is interested in the message of the Revelation. But according to the book itself, this message is intended for believers, for those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, of course, the Gospels show us Jesus in his humility. We, we see Jesus in the Gospel as the Son of God who had one set of clothes, We see Jesus in the Gospels as the Son of God who said that he didn't even have a place to lay his head. He didn't have a personal home. We see Jesus in the Gospels as to having pulling money from a fish because he didn't have the money to pay unto Caesar that which was Caesar's. We see Jesus of the Gospels in the humility of being born not in a hospital or not in a palace, but in a barn. And we see the humility of Jesus in the Gospels in that he was erected on the old rugged cross and shed his blood for us. So we see Jesus so much in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, in humility. Throughout Revelation, we are going to see him in his glory. We're going to see him in his power as Savior and ruler and God and King. This book of Revelation teaches us, his servants, that we are going to be future inheritors of the kingdom of God. Now, throughout Revelation, we know one fact of God's will, that according to this book and according to the book of Daniel, as we just studied it this past Sunday, that the time of the second coming, when Jesus returns for his church, is at hand. If you were not here this past Sunday, uh, one fact that I do want you to hear is that according to all of God's Word, every prophecy of this Word has now been fulfilled. And the next thing that is to happen according to the timeline of the Bible is Jesus' return. I can't tell you that it's going to happen tonight or 10 years or 100 years from now. You know, according to God's Word, uh, for the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. So it may be a day or a thousand years from now. We don't know that. It's not for us to know, but we do know that the second return of Christ is the next thing that is to happen in God's timeline. He first came to a manger and went to a cross, 
But the second time that he comes, as we see him revealed in this book, he comes as king, he comes as Lord, and he comes as judge. Now, who is the first, and I think this might be one of the questions, who is the first to receive this letter as God reveals his truth to the Apostle John? Who are the first recipients of this letter of the Revelation? John is instructed to send it to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which in our present world is Turkey, modern-day Turkey. This area was divided into seven postal districts. It had seven key cities, and each one of these cities had a Christian congregation in it. So originally, the book of the Revelation was a letter to be sent to each one of the seven churches of Asia. Now, look at chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. So John begins with a greeting to these churches. And if you will notice in this greeting, it is setting forth the trinity of God. Uh, Look at verse 4 and 5. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you in peace. Now, listen for the trinity here. From him which is, which was, which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Let's stop right there. First of all, John, as he is addressing originally these seven churches, he offers God's grace and peace. If you remember, Paul opens his letters in the very same way with grace and peace. Why that order? You'll notice that that order never changes in the Bible, either from Revelation or in the uh, books of of, uh, Paul, because you can never have peace until you first have grace. So it's always grace and peace, and they're never reversed because you can't have peace until you first have the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, you'll you'll notice here he offers grace and peace from the Lord God, the Father who is who was, who is to come. God has no beginning. God has no end. Now, after he mentions God the Father, who was, who is, and who is to come, then John mentions the seven spirits who are before the throne in verse 4. What does that represent? In the seven spirits, we see the representation of the Holy Spirit of God, the one Holy Spirit of God. In the Jewish temple, there was one lampstand, And on that lampstand, there were seven lamps, and it was called the menorah. In fact, it is mentioned in Zechariah chapter 4. You don't have to turn there, but let me quickly read this to you. Zechariah chapter 4, it talks about a golden candlestick. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is awakened out of his sleep and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it and his seven lamps thereon and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. And two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. 
So the seven spirits before the throne of God is indicative of the one Holy Spirit of God. The seven spirits stand for fullness, stand for perfection, but there's one lampstand with seven candles on it. There is one Holy Spirit, but the number seven indicates his perfection, his total power. So John here is referring to the fullness and completeness and power and sufficiency of God's Spirit, and where does his Spirit live? In us. For every believer of the Lord, the Spirit of God lives in us. Why is this book for believers? Because as we read this book, the words of this book minister to us because the Spirit residing in us teaches us the meaning of these words. That's why the unsaved world can't understand the book of the Revelation, because the Spirit of God does not reside in them. The perfection and the power and the grace and the glory of the Spirit of God is not present in an unsaved person. And so when these words are being read and they are difficult to understand, the unsaved person has no teacher. So the Spirit of God pulls up to us as our teacher. Then in verse 5, we have seen a statement about the Father, who is, who was, who is to come. We've seen a statement about the Holy Spirit, and now we're seeing a statement about Jesus Christ. Look at the first, verse, uh, first part of verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. He is the witness to us of God's everlasting love. When we think about Jesus' earthly ministry, he is the witness to us of God's power, God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, and we see that exemplified certainly on the cross. He is the heavenly king of every earthly king. Now, look at uh, the second part of verse 5 and verse 6. He's the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus loves us so much that he shed his own blood to cleanse us, to wash us of our sin. Through him, according to the book of the Revelation, it tells us that he makes us kings and priests. What does that mean? Well, we are kings because when you're saved and when I am saved, we are an inheritor of the kingdom of God. In other words, when you and I live in heaven, we're not visitors there. But according to the word of God, we're co-owners there. When we are adopted by grace into the faith and into the family of Jesus Christ, then not only are we visitors in the kingdom of heaven, but rather we are co-owners. We are inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. Just as when my mother and father passed away, my sister and I inherited their property. What belonged to them now belongs to us. And in the same way, because God Almighty and through His Son Jesus who saved us established the kingdom of heaven, when we come to that place, it doesn't just belong to them, but they pass ownership on to us. So we're kings in that we're owners in the kingdom of heaven. And then also the book of Revelation says that we are priests. How, does, how do we become a priest as a believer in the Lord? We are a priest because through Jesus Christ, we have the right and the privilege to come before the almighty throne of God. 
You know, we don't come to God by this side door of praying through the Virgin Mary. We don't come to God through the side door of praying through some saint or some earthly priest. You have as much right and ability uh, in the kingdom of God to come directly before the throne of God as I do. You don't have to come through me. I don't have to come through you, but rather we're priests and that we have the freedom individually to come before our God. That makes us a royal priesthood. But also a responsibility of the priesthood is that we are going to be witnesses for our Savior in this lost world. We are anointed to that ministry because we are a priest of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can approach God freely in prayer and also we approach our world in service that we might bring our master to the unsaved. So we're priests in that we are commanded by God to be his servants and also to come before him in prayer. Now, look at verse 7. This is a statement about Jesus' second coming. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. This coming with the clouds is a fulfillment of a prophecy that we're going to study very soon. It is in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Uh, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. Now, these clouds are not ordinary clouds. They're not the clouds that float around up in the sky that we look at, but rather these are clouds of glory. In the Old Testament, God often manifested himself in blazing light, in a cloud of glory that was known as a Shekinah glory, the glory of God. And so those are the kind of clouds that we're going to see when Jesus does come again. You will notice that the book of the Revelation says, every eye will see Jesus coming in return. Every eye will see Jesus coming in that Shekinah glory. Every eye that has been saved by the grace of Christ and every person who has never been saved, every eye shall see Jesus come. The saved will rejoice, but according to verse 7, the unsaved are going to cry and mourn and wail because their decision was too late for Christ. You remember, as we've studied the book of Daniel, that it says Jesus' coming, the Son of Man's coming, is going to be very immediate and very quick so that people are not going to have time for any kind of U-turn. The decisions that they've made in life are going to be sealed the moment that Jesus breaks through those clouds of glory. So it's going to be a glad day for some, and according to verse 7, it's going to be a sad day for some. Those who put it off, those who would not come to Christ. Now look at verse 8. These are words of Christ. Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come the Almighty. Now, John quotes these words directly of Jesus Christ. If you have a red leather Bible, you see that those words are in red. They are words of Christ. I am the Alpha and Omega. I'm sure most of you know this, but Alpha and Omega are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. In our terms, they, Jesus is the A to the Z. Now, I want you to think of our alphabet. Of all the words that you and I know, every word of the English language is a combination of some sort of only 26 letters. The shortest word, 
to the very longest word in the English language is a combination of only 26 letters. We don't exceed that. We have 26 letters in the English alphabet, and every word completely is made up of those 26 letters. Now, just as the alphabet contains all the words, Jesus calls himself the Alpha and Omega, or the A to the Z, so that he contains all the wisdom and all the power and all the glory of God Almighty. By the way, the word Almighty occurs eight times in the book of the Revelation. So Jesus is the Alpha to the Omega. He is the A to the Z, and we see everything about the character of God in Jesus Christ. He is the A to the Z of God's glory. Now, in these next few verses, John describes how this letter of the Revelation came about. I thought this is very interesting. I was, I've been intrigued by these, these uh, verses for years. But listen to verses 9 through 11. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest... Write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. So the seven churches then are listed as to who will receive this letter of the Revelation. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle John, he is the one apostle out of the 12 who lived to an old age. The other 11 died early on in life. But God spared John the apostle's life, and he lived to be an old man. In fact, as we read God's Word and as we study the traditions of the New Testament, it does say that John eventually got off of the island of Patmos and for a very short time was able to come back to the Christian churches but he was very old and very revered and very respected. But in this particular uh, day and age, when the book of the Revelation was written, he was on a prison island. This island of Patmos was the Alcatraz of John's day. It was the Alcatraz of the Roman Empire. Remember, as we've studied the book of Daniel, the role of the empires uh, from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece to the Roman Empire. In the time, in the day, in the age that this letter was written, the Roman Empire was still the strength of the world. It was still the one ruling kingdom of the world. It was the world power of the day. Patmos was the Alcatraz Island where the worst of the criminals were sent, most of them to spend the rest of their lives and, and to die their death there. It was barren. It was desolate. It was rocky, about 10 miles long, 6 miles wide, sitting in the Aegean Sea. Uh, no one left, no one came in except those who were bringing the prisoners. Now, on that island, you will notice that John says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What is the Lord's day? It is Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection. Now, that does not mean when it says that he's in the Spirit that he was sleeping or he was drowsy or he was dreaming. 
but rather the Spirit of God ushered him into the very presence of God. If you will remember, there is another passage about another man who was ushered into the presence of God. He said, this happened some 14 years ago, and I was taken into the presence of God in the third heaven. Do you remember who the man was? St. Paul. And he was taken to the presence of God, and you can read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But John, on the island of Patmos as a prisoner, why was he a prisoner? Because he was a preacher of the gospel in the Roman Empire. So he was being punished for being a child of God, a man of God, and a preacher of God's word. That's why he was taken to that island. But God ushers John into his presence in the Holy of Holies, and God gives him instructions that he is to write down what he sees and to send this information, this letter, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, initially, when John sees a vision of Jesus Christ, in verses 12 through 17, it gives us a great and mighty picture of the Lord, and we're going to look at that picture tonight in the remaining moments of this study. So as we look at verses 12 through 17, let's just begin with the first two of those, verses 12 and 13. John writes this, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Now, I want you to notice the seven golden lampstands in, uh, in reference here, or the seven golden candlesticks, depending on the translation that you have. These are the seven churches in Asia. I want you to notice that in the midst of the churches of Asia, Asia there's one standing there, and his name is Jesus. Jesus stands in the midst of his churches. We can be assured that just as Jesus stood in the midst of the churches of Asia when the book of Revelation was written, He is standing in the midst of His churches today. He is standing with us as the church that belongs to Him. Now, here comes the picture that John sees of Jesus Christ. Now, for those of us who had, have computers, and especially on, in a day that's been passed, maybe a little more with the high-speed stuff that goes on these days, it doesn't happen as much. But if you remember back in the older days when you downloaded a picture uh, to come to your computer, remember how it would unload and, and just kind of go strip by strip and line by line and kind of unfold in front of you as that picture was downloaded? Well, this is kind of the, the same. There's nine points in this picture of the Lord Jesus, and it kind of unfolds before us as we see John reveal who Jesus is and what he looked like. So, on your sheet, on the back side, you have a space to list these nine points about the picture of the Lord Jesus. And I'll give you the Scripture reference and what it says to reveal the picture as Jesus unfolds before us. Point number one, chapter 1, verse 13. It says, Jesus is like unto the Son of Man. Now, it had been around 60 years since John had seen Jesus in his earthly form. So six decades had passed since he had seen Jesus with his eyes, since he had seen Jesus walk the streets of Jerusalem and the shores of Galilee. 
And John says, when I see Jesus now, he is in his glorified state. So while he looks like the one that I saw in ministry when we walked together, he's different because now he is dazzling, he is radiant, and he is shining with God's glory. He is not dressed in peasant clothing anymore. He's not walking dusty streets with dirty feet anymore, but rather his presence is shining and holy and mighty. So that's point number one. Point number two, as the picture of Jesus unfolds, also in verse 13, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. So Jesus' clothing, as John sees him now, is a long robe with a golden band around his chest. King James Version says about the paps. The paps are the breasts. The the word in Greek is mastos. So somewhere on the upper side of his uh, abdomen, there is this golden belt. This is the clothing of power. This is not the clothing of Jesus suffering on a cross, but this is the mighty God who conquered sin, who offers us life, who scored a knockout over Satan and death and hell. So point number two is his clothing. Here's point number three as this picture unfolds. Verse 14, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. Now, here's one way we know that the glorified Jesus was very different from the Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus being fully Jew, probably against all odds, probably did not have blonde hair. Jesus had very dark hair, the dark hair of a Jew, and yet, as we know that he was of Jewish heritage, we see in his glorified, resurrected state, his hair is white in glory. Um, It speaks of righteousness. It speaks of purity. It also speaks of something that he earned. He earned that purity through his death on the cross to save us from our sin. Uh, some, Some folks who make fun of my graying hair... Uh, say, you know, I remember when your hair was dark, and I said, yeah, but I've earned every one of these white hairs. Uh, Jesus earned that white shock of hair because he is the Savior. Uh, His white hair speaks of his glory. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, I think these words will uh, strike a chord of memory with you. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white, as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Notice that the whiteness and the wool is mentioned in verse 14 of chapter 1 of Revelation. This is the unblemished Lamb of God, so pure in His whiteness of glory that He erases the red of sin in every believer. Point number four, verse 14, His eyes were as a flame of fire. In other words, Jesus' vision can penetrate any heart and any life. He knows all. He sees all. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He knows everything that is going on, and particularly, He knows you and me through and through. My favorite psalm is Psalm 139. And in that psalm, so it, say, it begins by saying, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising and art acquainted with all my ways. 
Those are the eyes of fire. Jesus knows everything about you and me. Another verse in Psalm 139 says, Lo, even before a word is on my tongue, thou knowest it all together. His eyes of fire search us and know us and know everything about us. And so that means that we stand absolutely fully exposed before Jesus' eyes. There is no hiding who we are before him. There is no hiding sin before him. We stand absolutely exposed before those eyes of fire. He knows us that well. Point number five is in verse 15. And his feet were like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. Now, the feet as brass, and again, we're tying into this Daniel study Sunday by Sunday. The feet as brass means that when he comes again, he will not be stopped by any force, including Satan himself. If you remember in our study of Daniel, brass symbolizes a strong army and a strong conqueror. The brass kingdom that we studied about in Revelation is the Greek kingdom. And the Greeks dressed their army in brass. Uh, Alexander the Great dressed in brass. The army was powerful. That army of brass took over the world in that day. And so Jesus having feet of brass, talk about his power to conquer sin. No army, no weapon can stop Jesus' second coming. In the Old Testament, brass also symbolizes judgment. And so Jesus will undeniably judge unbelievers and scoffers uh, and the unsaved. Point number six, it also in verse 15, his voice as the sound of many waters. Jesus' voice, when he returns again, is going to be full of volume and full of majesty. I believe that Jesus had that earthly kind of voice. How could you explain Jesus being able to address 5,000 people if he did not have a strong voice? Now, there have been a lot of studies done about the fact that uh, the geographical location and the lay of the land transported his voice. And when he, you know, there are places in the Bible talk about him standing in the boat, addressing the crowd from the boat, and the water carries sound and all that. I agree with that. But you still have to have a strong voice to talk to 5,000 people. Uh, you know, there are folks here, and, uh, you know, we're talking six or 700 people, and if this microphone is not on, you all are going, huh? Jesus had to have a strong voice as a human being, but it has no comparison to the voice that he has as the returning Son of God. When he speaks, even those in the grave will hear him speak. Someone said that when you stand by Niagara Falls, I've not been there, but my mother had been there, and she told me that when you try to talk to your neighbor close to the falls, you cannot hear for the noise of the water. And you'll notice that his voice is compared as the sound of many waters. When he comes and when he speaks, the world has one option, and that's to listen. Nothing else will drown out his voice. The saved, the unsaved, the Christian, and the atheist alike will have to listen to his voice. They will not have an option. Point number seven, verse 16. This is an interesting point. He had in his right hand seven stars. What are the seven stars? Well, I'm going to show you in another verse that they are the pastors 
of these seven churches. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. This is a definitive verse about the seven stars. The mystery. What's a mystery in the Bible? The mystery is knowledge of God that he reveals to us. So the mystery or the knowledge of God that he's giving us now, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, as we consider that, uh, an angel, actually the word translated is the word messenger. These are the seven messengers to the church. Now, the Living Bible, is all the translations that I could find today, the Living Bible says the leaders of the churches. But every other uh, translation says the seven stars uh, and the angels of the church. Now, God's angels have never led a church, all right? Out of the millions of angels, and I believe there are millions upon millions of angels, created beings of God, but never did an angel lead the church. Messengers lead the church. The, refer, the word here refers to the pastors, to the leaders, to the elders of those seven churches. Now, I never thought I'd be called a star or an angel, but this indeed is, is what the reference is here. But what an awesome thought to know that the pastors and the churches are in the very hand of God, according to this verse, the right hand, the hand of strength, the hand of power, according to the definition of the Bible. And as you serve him, and as I serve him, we are in that hand of power. Now, okay, we're up to point number eight. Point number eight's in verse 16. Out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. Now, the two edges are symbolic of the sword. Why does it come from his mouth? It talks about his speaking. This is something that emanates from his voice, from his mouth. It's a word picture. The sword has two jobs. One side of the sword cuts to bless the saved. But the other side of the sword cuts to judge the lost. So Jesus blesses the saved, but he judges the lost. One side of the sword cuts to heal. The other side of the sword cuts to judge. The saved from the lost, the sheep from the goats. The two-edged sword has two different jobs. Finally, point number nine. His countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. That's verse 16. Jesus shines with the glory of God. Do we see that somewhere in the Gospels? Absolutely. At his transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. He, he is shining with the glory of God in that place. But John now sees Jesus brightly shining as ruler and king. Isn't it amazing if, if you and I could just kind of put our feet in, in this old Apostle John's shoes. He loved the Savior as he walked the soil of this earth, and he loved the Savior as he accompanied him in that three years of ministry. He loved the Savior as he charged to the tomb, and there was no body there. But he also is learning now to love the Savior in this resurrected, glorified, shining, dazzling state. Well, let's end with verse 17. And when I saw him, John says, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as dead. John, the author of Revelation, was so comforted by Jesus when he walked the soil of this earth. Do you remember that John was the one who laid his head on Jesus' chest when they sat at the table? You see that in John chapter 13. But as he sees Jesus now, 
he is seeing Jesus in a completely different way. He sees Jesus in holiness. He sees Jesus in glory and in purity and in splendor. And the sight of his Lord is so overpowering and so awesome that he falls at his feet motionless in fear and respect of a Savior who gave himself for the Apostle John. Now, I believe that this is a picture that the church needs to come back to, that we understand the awesomeness and the respect that we owe to our Savior. You know, too often, I won't speak for you. I speak for me. Too often, I picture Jesus as the meek and the mild and the one who went to the cross for me. He's the one who let the woman pour ointment on his feet. He's the one who held children in his lap. But we also truly need to balance that picture with the picture that we see unfolding here of a fiercely holy God who gave himself. But he gave himself to save us. And when we are saved and when we are believers, Jesus holds a high standard for his children. Amen? Jesus holds a high standard for us. So we don't offer to our Savior this watered-down life. But rather, just like John, we should be falling at his feet in respect and surrender and submission. You know, sometimes I, I, I might be caught saying, you know, well, maybe I'll just put Jesus to the side here for a minute, do my own thing for a little bit. But Jesus is to have control of our lives. And Revelation assures us that he wills us, he wants us, he commissions us to serve him in this world. We are his priests and we are to give our lives in submission to him. Now tonight I want to end the study with this because I believe that every moment that we study God's word, it needs to end with this. For we who are believers, my prayer is that this picture of Jesus is building us up, that we understand the character of the Son of God, that he did die on a cross for us. But also this day, this night, and one day when we will physically see him with our eyes, we will see a holy, mighty, dazzling, radiant, powerful Son of God. That's what builds us up tonight. But if you are here and you have never received him as your Savior, tonight you simply need to say, Lord, I do believe that you went to cross for me. And I do believe that you love me so much that you allowed your blood to be shed to forgive my sin. But I know if I say, Lord, I believe and I accept you as my Savior, the redness of my sin will be cleansed as white as snow. And I receive you tonight as my Savior. If that's a decision that you need to make, as soon as this meeting is done, come talk to me. And we will make sure that before you leave this holy room tonight, that he is your personal Lord and your personal Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, thank you for these precious moments before you. Lord, thank you for this unfolding picture of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Thank you for what we're learning right now and in the successive lessons that are to come, Lord. We pray that you will completely unfold that picture and give us the full revelation of the glory of God through your son, Jesus. Lord, we love you. We thank you for these precious moments that we have to worship you and to open your word. Bless us as we continue to study it and allow it to feed our souls in Jesus' name.